thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Well, happy Easter, everyone. What a joy and celebration we get to be a part of. Now, from the very get-go, I want to be clear with everyone what it is that we're celebrating here. We're not celebrating that winter is over and spring has come. We're not celebrating that flowers are blooming and people get to wear pastel colors. We are celebrating because as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ literally and physically was resurrected from the dead. We truly believe it. We don't think it was symbolic or that it was an analogy. We believe that Jesus was literally murdered and placed into a tomb, and we believe that he was resurrected on Sunday. Now, I know some of you are here, and you're saying, yeah, of course, that's what we're celebrating. Some of you might be here saying, I, yeah, I've heard that before, and that's it's kind of in the back of my mind somewhere, but that's not really relevant to my life. Maybe he did, maybe he did, I don't know. I don't really know. I'm not going to say anything. And some of you here are thinking, really? Back from the dead? Like, like a zombie? Ugh. You know, I, I know some of these people. I thought they were educated. I, this is a, I thought an educated crowd of people. How could you possibly believe that? Wherever you're at, let me just say this. The question of resurrection is central to your life, and it needs an answer. Because if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then it's all true. If, if Christ and his resurrection is true, then all that he taught and all that he said is true. But if the resurrection is not true, then none of it's true. If Literally, Christ was raised from the dead, then we have reason to hope, and we have reason for a transformed lives in this world. But if he did not raise from, rise from the grave, then the Bible, it says in verse 19, it says, we are most to be pitied. So we have this central question that we're asking and we're saying to you, and I believe this is a central question, honestly, in all of existence. It, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is the resurrection true? Because if it is, then it's all true. And if it's not true, then none of it's true. And we're most to be pitied for those who believe. See, here's why. We underestimate the degree to which who we are now and what we do now is shaped by what we believe our ultimate future to be. Let me say that again. We underestimate the degree to which who we are now and what we do now is shaped by what we believe our ultimate future to be. Let me give you an example of this. When I was in uh, Uganda, there was a thing called a cho, okay? And really, basically, it's just a hole in the ground where you'd go use the restroom. Simple concept. They dig it. But every once in a while, it would get filled up, and every once in a while, somebody would drop something in there. And I asked about this one day. I said, you know, what if somebody drops something like a phone or something very valuable down there? What happens? For me, it'd be like, okay, bye-bye phone. That's okay. Never see it again. I'm okay. But what if something like an engagement ring, something so priceless that you think would drop in there? So I said, there are actually people who will, you can pay to go down there. And I said, there's no amount of money in the world. <laughs> and I just... That just does not happen. But there is. So let me ask you a question then. Let's just say you had to clean this show. You had to clean this, yeah, it's bad. But you had to clean it. And I'm going to say to you, okay, I'm going to pay one person $250 to clean it. 
but the other person, I'm going to pay $250 million to clean it. Does that make a difference in the attitude and in the way in which you approach cleaning the toe? Absolutely, radically, doesn't it? I mean, if I said, okay, you're going to mow this yard. Both of you are going to mow this yard. This is your job for the next 10 years of your life. And for the 10 years of your life, every year, for t- that you're gonna, you're gonna, you, at the end of it, you're going to make $100,000. Or at the end of 10 years, you're going to make $250 million. You're now mowing the yard being like, woohoo! You know, you're thinking, what am I going to buy? Where am I going to go? It changes everything when you think about the ultimate end and results. They're not processing, the two people as they approach this job are not processing based on their present circumstances. They're completely controlled in how they work at this moment by what they believe their ultimate future to be. Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and this is talked about, I mentioned them before in another sermon uh, that Keller kind of gave. In this book, The Rise of Christianity, he talks about the early Christianity, why it triumphed in the early Roman Empire. And he says there were three major ways in which the early Christians were remarkably different from their neighbors. Three major ways. One is when great epidemics hit the urban centers of the Greco-Roman world, while other peoples fled the cities, Christians stayed and even went into the cities to take care of the sick, even though in many cases they died doing so. Once, they f- when plague hit, they f- people fled, Christians went in. Two, when Christians were persecuted during that time, that's when they were put to death unjustly. They did not respond with terrorism or terrorist attacks. They did not respond with guerrilla warfare. Instead, they died praying for their enemies' forgiveness. And third, at the height of the Roman Empire, Roman conquered most all the nations, no nations of earth at the time. And that the first, for the first time, borders were being kind of wiped away and people from all over, all over the world, different parts of life, culturally, ethnically, racially, were coming together. But when they came together, all subjugated to the Roman Empire, that led to cultural, racial, and ethnic divides amongst the cities. And for the first time in history, all these, these people were together. But in these times of ethnic tension, Christians in the early church was the first institution in the history of the world that brought people together from across ethnic barriers. They said race means nothing. That's not what's important. And no other institution has ever done that before. So first, they said when, when epidemics would occur, when plague hit and everybody fled the cities, Christians ran to the cities. Two, when people were killing them and persecuting Christians, they didn't fight back, they didn't retaliate, they instead died praying for their enemies. And then three, in the midst of a time where all these races were mixed together for the first time truly in that known history of the world, they weren't fighting and hating each other or judging each other or persecuting each other based on race and ethnicity. They actually accepted one another. Those are three distinctives that this historian noted about the rise of early Christendom in the Roman Empire. Why were the Christians so much more compassionate to the sick? Why were they forgiving of their persecutors? Why were they ethnically inclusive? Were they just nicer people? Did they just happen to find the better people to come together as Christians? No. It all, every one of them knew where their future was. They knew what their future held. You see, their neighbors understanding the ultimate future was shrouded in mystery. They were completely uncertain about what the future holds. Am I going to be judged? Is there a judgment? 
What's going to happen? Is there annihilation? If there's annihilation, then I should eat, drink, and be merry. If there's no more after this life, then what's the point? I just do whatever I want now to feel the most good now, right? Or if there's a judgment, who's going to judge me? How do I determine? How do I know where I stand in the midst of this judgment? And leads to uncertainty and mystery. But Christians were shaped by a joyous certainty of God's future, that eternal glory and love was in store for them. So it absolutely changed the way they lived. It meant that they stayed in the cities that were surrounded by plague because they knew what comes after. And they didn't respond with terrorism because they knew at the moment that that person's soul was more important. They weren't ethnically exclusive with one another. They, weren't, they were inclusive of each other because they knew that Jew and Gentile alike Jesus came to die for. And you see, this certainty about the future was so different. That they were able to live in such a radical manner because they have a certainty about the future. And the answer and the key to this whole dynamic of Christian hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the key. When the early Christians looked at the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ gave them certainty of God's future for them. Certainty that's going to happen. It described the shape of God's future and what it's going to look like. It made them live in a manner that was totally different. Let's dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here. In verses 1 through 10, we see how the resurrection of Jesus here was shown and given as a vision to the early church. And they saw the risen Jesus and realized that it was according to Scripture, this gave them certainty. In verses 3 through 5, it says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. I love how it says in accordance to the Scriptures twice there. What Paul is saying, what he's communicating to the people, is when the early church, when the disciples saw Jesus risen from the dead, they're like, okay, he died according to Scripture, he rose according to Scripture. They didn't get it right away, but they saw that there's certainty in the resurrection. And certainty comes when you know the one who has all of it planned out. You know, there's a difference when me and my wife go on a trip together, and I'm like, uh, I think we're going to do this next, and then maybe left here, and then go that way. I, I, I'm not sure. She's not quite as comfortable. <laughs> but when I say, see how every step of our itinerary is planned out? That's not me, by the way, but I'm just saying, if it was, she'd be happier. <laughs> actually, I'm going on a trip, actually, with Arthur. Arthur and I, my wife and I, all of us, we're going on a trip. Arthur, Stephanie, all of us. And there's a huge difference between the way he plans for a trip and the way I plan for a trip. He actually already sent a schedule, itinerary, flights are this time, here's a flight number, here's where we're staying, here's what we're doing at this hour, this hour. I'm like, let's just show up and go. Right? We'll figure it out. Right? But my wife is much more orderly, and she likes to know exactly. But there is a difference in confidence level, isn't there? When you know the one who's like, no, I got every bit of it planned out. Don't worry about it. And that's what Paul is saying. The early church, the disciples saw, wow, I didn't get it. I didn't see it at the time. But this is according to the plan that God had. It's all according to Scripture. There's a confidence there. They had the certainty. There are three things we know for sure, and this is not speculation. That the first thing is thousands of early Christians had a worldview revolution overnight. That's something that never happens. 
It's virtually unknown. It's never happened before. It's honestly, philosophically, it's something that doesn't exist. If you look around, and you look around all kind of cultural or worldview shifts or movements in the world that's ever happened before, it never happens overnight, right? It usually happens by, let's say, a back and forth dialogue, a spectrum of belief. It grows gradually. You know, there's this kind of like, okay, debates, maybe the academics first start viewing something in, in such a way, whether it's reason versus mysticism, or whether it's kind of a new wave of, of, of thought processes or metaphysics, whatever it may be. It never just happens overnight. Worldviews don't shift overnight. Typically what happens is a group of people believe in something, start professing something, start writing research papers on something, whatever that may be. Then they start debating it, open forums, discussing it. Maybe it starts getting popular amongst other circles. More academics grab a hold of it. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually, after years of years of time, this whatever movement may be starts getting popularity and gaining traction and reaches critical momentum. Right? That's typically how worldviews change. But what happened here Overnight, with no spectrum of belief, 100% unanimity, you see, suddenly see thousands of Jews and Greeks all of a sudden professing and starting a new movement. That doesn't happen apart from the resurrection. I'll say that again. Historically, whether it's from the Bible or not, if you don't trust the Bible as your historical source, you'll see over and over again that without fail, every historian that you can mention, that all of a sudden sprang, after the crucifixion of Jesus, sprang a movement a worldview shift that radically changed the course of the world. Overnight, the Bible says it's because thousands saw the resurrected Jesus. See, apart from the resurrection, it doesn't have an answer, really, for how in the world does this movement happen. Apart from the resurrection, that doesn't make sense that a worldview shift happens that quickly. The second thing we know is just what Paul put down is that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. And I want you to get this. Paul didn't write this letter hundreds of years after this happened. Right? Paul wrote this letter approximately maybe 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He literally even said that there are some alive now who are still walking among us, some who are dead, some who are sleeping now, who were witnesses to this. So Paul is writing this statement. He's writing this big professing statement that hundreds saw well, that basically means that there are people who can be like, dude, what are you talking about? Nobody saw. But that's not what happened. In a time where the roads were open, media was shared, people could kind of, kind of refute the truth of what Paul is saying. He's made a bold statement. He's saying Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And there were hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses. And people could have checked him up on it. I want you to understand what I'm arguing for, what I'm stating to you is this, that the certainty existed because the disciples believed, they saw the risen Jesus. And that certainty of the resurrection is what led them to live a life in a certain manner. You know, I love this statement that I've heard before, is that what if it's a big hoax, right? What if the disciples just kind of made it up? All right, they're like, well, you know, there's 11 of us. If we just tell everybody we saw Jesus, cool, right? This, this, this will work out really well because it will lead to us getting really wealthy and really powerful and having, like, uh, you know, people loving us and adoring us. And, you know, is that what happened? 
I mean, think about it this way, okay? If it was a hoax, it would make sense then, if it was a hoax and the disciples decided to make up the resurrection of Jesus, that they actually saw Jesus, it would make sense for them to be like, well, yeah, I'm making it up because I get wealthy, rich, happy, I can do whatever I want. That's not at all what happened. Every single, according to church history, every single disciple except for John died a martyr's death. Why in the world would you live like that and die like that for something you made up? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you make something up that seems so contrary to anything? Guys, I want you to understand this idea of the resurrection, even though Jesus kind of taught it, he kind of said, hey, I'm going to rebuild the temple, or hey, I'm gonna, you'll see me again. That was kind of, for them, the disciples still were completely clueless. They're like, this idea, this concept of resurrection was not something that was existed for them. It wasn't until Jesus was actually resurrected that they were like, oh. If they were going to make something up, they would not make up the resurrection. They would make up a religion that said, hey, follow Jesus' teachings. Guys, I want you to understand something. This is what I, <laughs> I don't have much time. I, don't want to, I just want to hammer in here. Is that the certainty of the resurrection of Christ should radically change the way you live. The certainty of the re resurrection of Jesus Christ should radically change the way you live. You see, it's what happened to the early Christians that made Christianity move so powerfully in the Roman Empire. The certainty of their glorious future. But can I ask you just an honest question right now? And this is going to be a difficult question for me to ask, but I'm just going to ask it. When that verse, when Paul says that we should be most to be pitied, it says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we have all people most to be pitied. Basically, it's asking the question, are you living a life in such a manner that it doesn't make sense apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask that question again. Are you living life in such a manner that it does not make sense apart from the real truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Does your life not make sense in light of eternity and the glory of eternity? Does your life not make sense in the value of human dignity that God has given you, the reality of the resurrection and the kingdom that's moving? And I'll be the first one to admit, I want to sit here and I'm like, yes, it does all the time. And then I'm like, oh, wait, my life doesn't. Because let me tell you, it is so often so easy for me to be like, my world right now is my eternity. My world right now, my life right now is all that matters. And I often so quickly forget that eternity is bigger. And there's so much more. But can I tell you what Paul is calling to you? He says, if you really see, if you see how amazing eternity is, if you see how incredible the glory is of the future, that you cleaning out that bathroom is worth $500 million. If you do whatever it is that suffers in life that you go through is worth whatever glory because God brings such glory to you for eternity that you would live life differently. I've heard it often be said that he said, why not be a Christian? You know, it's like adding fire insurance. That is a false statement. Being a Christian is not just something you add on as fire insurance. It's not something that you just check a box off and say, oh, I'm a part of the club now. Guys, this is a, a life pursuit of knowing Jesus, of believing the resurrection, because it absolutely changes the way you live. Paul did something radical. 
the guy who wrote this, he was beaten countless times, shipwrecked, foot sore, working hard, traveled, persecuted, mocked, abused, eventually crucified and martyred. He's saying, look at my life. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, it doesn't make sense. I should be pitied. If there wasn't a resurrection of the dead, then what should we do? We should eat, drink, and be merry. But, but if Jesus is real, and if the resurrection is true, and we have eternity before us, that it absolutely changes everything. It makes all that we're called to do on this earth worthwhile. It gives dignity to the human being to the left and to the right of you. It gives eternal worth that doesn't exist apart from now, apart from the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Christ shows us a certain future. I love this song. If you go to uh, see uh, verses 54 on, this is actually a well-known song that people would sing back then. And it goes, death is swallowed up in victory, or death wears a victory, or death wears you sing. Didn't we just sing this? Right? Who wears Nathan? Can somebody sing it for me? I, uh, if I sing it, I might scare off everybody. But basically it goes, death wears your victory, oh death wears your sting. I love this. There's two things I want us to look forward to with what we have in our future. Two things. One, we have a stingless death. Oh, death, where is your sting? The word sting is actually a very specific Greek word um, that literally means, uh, doesn't mean just a bite or a sting, but it means a poison sting, right? It's not just a bite or a sting. It literally means a poison sting, kind of used for like a scorpion sting, a, a lethal sting. And basically, the sting is what he's saying is the, the poison of death, where is your sting? There is no more poison any longer in death. See, the poisonous thing he says later on is the law. And basically what this saying is this, Epicurus has a fascinating statement about death. He says that if we could be sure if death was just annihilation, then we'd be no fear of it for as long as we exist. Death is not there. When it does come, we no longer exist. But we cannot be totally sure it's annihilation. What people fear most is not that maybe death is annihilation, but that maybe death is not. It's this fascinating idea that, that there is a fear of death because we don't know. Is it an end of all things? Right? Well, if it's just an end, then okay, what is there to fear? But is there something that we have, a conscience that we have that says, maybe there is a judgment? Maybe there is a judgment. And we have this idea that just this conscience inside of us, and this, the, 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 this idea that says, I, I just, if there is, then what happens to us? What happens to us? And to lose the sting of that, and we sit here, I love, the, 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 it says here, at the end of um, 58, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And it's this idea what the sting of the poison is, is the law, because the law condemns us for judgment. The law condemns us for judgment. That is the sting in death. That is the poison in death. And what happens in the resurrection of Jesus is that he takes upon himself the sting and the poison in his death. And and then in his resurrection, he says the sting and the poison no longer has power. Guys, I like to say it this way. I want you to hear me very well when I say this. 
is that every one of us has this idea of the kind of the eternal nature of our souls and ourselves, right? I'll be honest with you guys. When I was a kid, I used to lay down in bed. I could never sleep at night. I, I had struggles. I just would not sleep. I'd, you know, annoy my parents to no end. I'd be like, Mom, I can't sleep. Go count sheep. I kind of do a million already. I don't care. Just go away. But I, mean, I, would, I just could not sleep because I mean, one of the things I, could, I would scare myself so much of is I'd think about eternity. And I don't know why. I don't know if most kids did this. But I'd, I'd be like in bed and I'd be like, what is forever and no end and eternity? And I'd kind of freak myself out. Right? Has anybody else ever done that before? Yeah, okay. Might be certain personality types. I don't know. But I would freak myself out. I'd be like, what is eternity? I can't comprehend eternity. It's so scary to me. Guys, I want you to know something. That we have an innate fear of the unknown. As human beings, we have an innate fear of the unknown. We have an innate fear of what's going to happen next. And we have a, kind of an innate desire or a, an awareness of the eternal nature of ourselves. Right? I believe that because we were created in the image of God. So he's given us this idea of the eternal because we are created in his image. But I also believe because of the human condition. This is why I believe. I always address this as a human condition. I believe that the human condition is this, that every human being wants to be known, wants to be loved, and wants purpose. I believe that every human being that exists out there, if you look at the fears of man and the fears of your own heart, the insecurity, the issues you have, it all stems down to those human condition issues that you want to be known, you want to be loved, and you want purpose. The problem is, when you realize that you want to be known, you realize, man, I stink. The problem is, when you realize my thoughts are deep and dark, um, if I'm truly known, I don't know if I could ever be loved. Right? So we wear a lot of masks because we think, well, I'd rather not be known, I'd rather be loved, right? Or, well, I'd rather not be, I don't need any of those things, as long as I have purpose, as long as I'm successful or leave a mark behind. But when you realize, even in that, that's just not enough. It doesn't satisfy your eternal nature of your heart because you want to be known eternally. You want to be loved, not just for a short time, you want to be loved eternally. And you want purpose that lasts eternally. And we see here in the law, we see here that the law states, condemns us to say that if you're known and in the midst of all the sin and the issues and the guilt that you have, well then you just honestly don't deserve to be loved. And we have this issue. Because we want to be known, but if you know us, we realize our, our, our sin separates us, our, our issues keep us away from truly receiving the type of love unconditionally that we just want so badly. But then comes the work of Jesus, who knows perfectly the human condition. Because the God who made us then sends Jesus, who knows perfectly the human condition, to say, come into our reality, to know us, to live the life of love, the perfect life of the law that he's called to live. But then he dies upon the cross. And in the fullness of time, with his death upon the cross, he takes upon himself the judgment and the penalty and the weight and the guilt of all of our sin upon himself. Not only that, he pays the debt that we owe to the creator of the universe. Not only that, he ransoms us in his death. He takes us from the captivity that we're in and he sets us free. And not only that, he starts and inaugurates his kingdom of peace and justice by his work on the cross. And so now, because he is the chosen one of God, and because death could not hold him, 
he's resurrected from the dead. And because of that resurrection, and because of the work of Jesus, we can now say, death, where is your sting? There's no poison anymore, because we are not bound by the, that, that, the law any longer. Instead, we can have confidence in death, knowing that a righteous God knows us and loves us. We can no longer fear death because we know that we're not just ending up in annihilation, but instead our eternal soul has an eternal home where we can be eternally known, eternally loved. That's the good news of the gospel. And that, with that confidence, the early Christians were able to run, run into cities where people were dying of disease and ailments, where they could contract plague. They would run into these cities and say, I don't care if I die, death has no sting. And they would go into places where they were being themselves murdered and killed for their faith. They could say, I pray for you because your eternal soul is more important than my physical body now because death has no more sting. The power of the resurrection of Jesus. We see here that not only death has no sting, but we see that death is swallowed up in victory. I love that term, swallowed up. Death is swallowed in victory. Not just like death is defeated in victory, or death is just kind of you know, put down or put in its place. It's swallowed in victory. Guys, I want you to understand this. The resurrection of Jesus also in this song shows us that death and our suffering is swallowed up. It doesn't say that it's removed, but literally, it's like a piece of pie. It's not thrown away. Somebody swallows it, and when you swallow it, it becomes part of your life. It enhances you. It comes into you. And what I'm saying to this is this. With the resurrection of Jesus, death and suffering now are swallowed up and now is used for glory. Let me explain. See, if we didn't have the resurrection of Jesus, then can I just tell you there is no point in suffering. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then what is the point of suffering or pain? What is the point of loss? What is the point of any of the hardships that we face in our difficult world we live in? But in the resurrection of Jesus, in the hope we have in him, that even suffering has a place. Even suffering isn't meaningless. It has purpose. It has a point. It is swallowed up by victory. Because it says this, guys, that your cancer or your sickness or your chronic ailment or the loss of the loved one, whatever pain and suffering it is that you faced or will face, it leads to eternal glory. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, it leads to more. And that's the faith that I need in this world, isn't it? In the world full of pain and heartache, in the world full of troubles, I need the type of resurrection power that can look at the face of suffering and pain and say, you're not meaningless, you're not pointless, it's not for nothing, it's for glory. And God, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus because it means there is more glory. 
Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we know we can face death and suffering and say, where is your sting? Let's pray. Before we pray, I, I want to invite any of those who are here during our time of worship and time of singing, if you have any desire, any yearning in your heart, any desire to, 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 to believe and choose to believe or question or, or ask, what is belief? If you'd find me or Pastor Josh or, or Danny or any of the elders, and we'd love to come and pray with you and talk to you. You'd find us standing up there in the back or up in the front, but if there's anybody here who faith isn't just saying that you believe something. Faith is actually taking the leap of, it's, not, it's like looking at a chair and saying, I believe that chair will hold me if I sit in it. But faith is actually sitting in the chair. And we ask you to, to if that's you in this place today, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. Because in the resurrection of power, resurrection power of Jesus, we believe that he's transforming hearts even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you God, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. That we celebrate a risen Savior, a living hope. God, that gives us hope of the future, of a glorious future that allows us to say, death, where is your sting? That we notice that death and suffering is swallowed up by your victory. So we thank you for the risen Jesus. And we praise him and lift him high in this place. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, Lord. Thank you.